0: Welcome to the Directing Animation Livecast with Scott Weiser. Now that I'm done directing the development and first episode of the second series of Space Station Animation, I'm joining up with Steamroller Animation to push the boundaries of the art form. Thanks to the support of so many of you, I'm continually developing more than 10 dynamic feature film pitches while mastering the art of telling deeply meaningful stories. Today our guest is Ross Veneker, and this is the first time on this show that we've had a guest on as their feature film was releasing in theaters. Very same day, his film is called Rally Road Racers. Uh, he's also, Ross has also worked on Charming that was on Netflix, he directed that. And he's written for a lot of big powerhouse companies, Disney, Fox, Walter Media, Warner Brothers, DreamWorks, Sony, Universal, The Jim Henson Company, uh, Nickelodeon in his early days, worked on an original live action project called The Tick, which I remember <laughs> when I saw that. I was like, oh, I remember The Tick. That's kind of, that's really fun. And uh, yeah, is there anything you'd like to add to that introduction, Ross? No, I, 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 that covers it. It's been a very long career that led me down the path that independent
1: animation, and I'm just thrilled to be here today, especially on the day, the first time I've had a wide release of a theatrical film. It's a pretty big, exciting day to be here.
0: I know that's, that's gotta be an amazing feeling. And you were saying beforehand, there's not a frame of this film that you, you don't have memorized, which is, it's very relatable.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you, I think from, from green light to finishing it, it was supposed to take 18 months and it took four years and, you know, working on it every day in some capacity, you just go over every frame, frame by frame until until it's done. Yeah. uh, these things are a labor of love. And the amazing thing is, you know, so many people think, oh, it's a labor of love for you. You wrote and directed it. It's a labor of love for hundreds of people. The crew yeah. is just like showing up every day. and Oh, yeah. Loved it. It's amazing.
0: Yeah. That is a wonderful thing. And, you know, that, that provides jobs for people and that provides really great experience and growth and, and all kinds of wonderful opportunities for people. So, yeah. And you directed it as a nomadic, you know, from your camping and from the your the front of your car and, you know, just kind of going all, all over, which is, is pretty awesome. Yeah, too. It's, it started it started as,
1: as a remote job in a sense. I was living for where, as I had been for years in Ojai, California with my family. And the movie was made, the front end was done out of Montreal and the rest was done in London for five. So I was going to Montreal every six weeks, for two weeks. And then the pandemic started. And I, I mean, it's funny, I remember I was up in Montreal and one of my board artists came up to me, this woman Priscilla, who's an amazing board artist. And she said, hey, have you seen this thing? It's this, It's coming out of like Wuhan, China, which we thought was funny because that's where our character was from. Now, I've never been to China, but I picked Wuhan off a map and it was baked into the movie. And I was like, it'll pass. Don't worry about it. Cut to, I never went back to Montreal again. Uh, we had to remove Wuhan from the movie. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then, so that began the nomadic phase of our life after a few months. In Ohio, my family and I decided to take to the road. And we spent about a year and a half on the road looking for a new place to live. And I was directing the movie every day. So from Airbnbs, side of the road hotels, camping a couple times, and uh, working with artists all over the world. It's incredible.
0: Yeah. It sounds both hard and fun. <laughs> the, ba-
1: the balance part is hard because I have three daughters and... There's nothing worse than being with your children and having your mind be somewhere else. You know, I wanna want be oh, with my kids. I wanna yes. be with my kids. And so the for me it was it was a lot of lessons of okay, I'm gonna create a space to be doing my work and then I've gotta be back with my family. And the way I normally handle that because of the time difference is I just get up really early. I try to do everything in the morning before everyone's really awake and functioning, and then I could be present. And obviously things bleed into the day, and there are meetings you can't control, but I really tried to create that balance by just getting up early.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, before we make our wait, viewers wait too long, we do have the trailer to show. And, uh, and so we're going to play that now so you don't have to go and look it up elsewhere. And uh, yeah, enjoy it. So it's the last day of the
1: Bonza Rally. Is
2: still the driver to beat. Ah, thank you. I'm gonna be the champ.
0: I just want to race.
1: Huh? Coming soon.
2: A Silk Road rally. Oh, it's gonna be epic. Building a trophy case? I mean, you haven't even won yet. But I will. You seem pretty confident you're going to win. Willing to stake a bet on it? You're the one who's supposed to be doing the beating of me. I laugh at the idea. (laughs) Why the long face, kid? kind of have to sort of race the Silk Road Rally. That race is no holds barred. 200 miles per hour for four days straight across unforgiving terrain against the craziest drivers in the world. I know, how am I gonna beat the best racer in the world? All right, kid, listen. You got everything you need, but you and me together There ain't nothing we can't do. Whoa. Okay, let's see what you got. Let's go! Come on! Let's run this toy! It goes! Attack! This is crazy! Do you see that guy's car? If I had a car like that... Cars don't win races drivers do. Although, yeah, we actually are gonna need the car. I'm in way over my head. I can help you, but no questions asked. You would do that? But why? Okay, there was two questions right off the line. See you tomorrow.
0: All right. Yeah, that, uh lots of bold colors in that um, we were chatting a little bit, you know, privately about it. <laughs> I really liked the frog design. I think it's unlike many designs you see in, in films, especially when it comes to to animals. I think it was a really bold choice. It was fun to have all that negative space around the teeth. Makes him feel less honest. <laughs> yeah. His giant two <laughs> Yeah, Yeah. <laughs> exactly i love i love that
1: design so i mean the character designs in general i love in this film you know uh the production designer alexi natchitai was such a gift to this movie and he he and i he's the first real hire of the film we just had a mind meld at the beginning and really he really understood what i wanted to do and then did what you would hope and pray a production designer would do just take what you want to do and make it even better and push it even further and just kept coming back with you know we knew our limitations we had a very low budget and Alexei has been fortunate enough to work on movies with really big budgets, like Arthur Christmas and other great films. And so he he knew how to design stuff that we could afford that would still stand up in a theater to these other big uh, productions. And I just I just love his character design. Um, him and, and the character designer Jason were just amazing.
0: That's cool. That's very cool. Tell us about this journey. Like I know it's no secret that I'm pitching out there, trying to raise funds, trying to get projects moving. Uh, how did you get? you know, from your idea and you wrote it down and then how did you get to the process where you actually had this fund and you were able to make this thing and then release it in theaters of all things?
1: (sighs) Um, You know, every step of the way has been interesting. So really it started in the coming out of this, the last writer strike in 2008. uh, It was, I was really making my living as a comedy writer, writing television and writing uh, films. And then the whole way writers worked in Hollywood shifted after that strike. And so sort of coming out of that I had a really bumpy year just because I realized my business model wasn't working anymore <laughs> and uh, my wife it was the last day of business before the you know winter holiday break it was Friday night and I was just feeling a little beaten up and my wife came to me and said my wife Lenore who is was sort of the theme of my life is all good ideas come from Lenore um, <laughs> came to me and said and we had just had our third child and I was just feeling like kind of stressed and confused about what I was doing and she said why don't you step outside of Hollywood a little bit you know you've been a little bit frustrated by it anyway and try to go the independent route and email these three guys who different guys I've known and I said you know it's a great idea I'll do it after the holidays <laughs> and she said no you do it right now because you won't do it after the holidays <laughs> At 10 o'clock on Friday night the town was shut down so I sent this email and one of those people John Williams who's the producer of this movie responded to me the next morning, like six in the morning on Saturday. And I was living in Ojai and he was living in Santa Barbara. He like, just come up, we'll talk. And it didn't work out. But the first Monday coming back from the holidays, I went to his office in LA and I said, here's what I want to do. I want to make independent animated movies. John had been a producer of Shrek and he was one of the producers attached to the first pitch I ever sold, which was back when I was 22 years old. And uh, so I'd known him for a while. So I said, well, I'm, I'm starting to raise money to do this. What do you have in mind? And I pitched him three movies, and amazingly, this is the third of those three movies. We made all of them. The first one came out eventually under the Acorns Operation Crackdown, which was a micro-budget and was a whole podcast can go into the difficulties of making that movie. Then there was Charming, and then there was a movie that at the time was called The Fast and the Furious, which became (laughs) the Silk Road Rally, which became Rally Road Racers. So it's been how we got to Rally Road Racers. Uh, you know, because it was the third and it took years and, and Charming had its own bumpy ending. So I really didn't think after Charming I was gonna direct the movie again because it was I had a pretty painful experience at the end of Charming watching people recut my movie and do and that movie was really important to me. Um, so John called me, you know, after I was in this dark period for about six months
0: <laughs> and he said,
1: I fa- I found fa- I have met this producer and financer. I think you should come meet him. I said, you know what, John, why don't you just go have that meeting? If it goes well Send me a check for my screenplay and get someone else to direct it. He said, I think you should meet him. So I went down there and I met Deepak Nair, who's the other producer of the film. Uh-huh. And I just loved Deepak. But Deepak's an independent film producer through and through. He's made, at the time, he had made 68 movies. You know, Buena Vista, Social Club, wow. Bend It Like Beckham. Like amazing films. Wow. No animated films. But he said, he gave me this great speech, which I'm going to now. And I just loved him. And so I left. And I was calling my wife on the way back up to Ojai. And she was like, "You're gonna direct it, aren't you?" I was <laughs> like, "Yes, I am." But, but I'm gonna do it different. I'm not gonna get emotionally invested. It's gonna be different this time. And this guy Deepak's great. Anyway, that's how that
0: happened.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I left out a lot of the details, but that's the general shit.
0: That is a good uh, I'm general. So, I'm so yeah. Glad I did it. Yeah. And those dark times they happen. They, <laughs> they happen. You don't know you, know. you don't know how quickly or how slowly you'll recover from them either. And. Uh, Yeah. And that thing about your good advice coming from your wife. I would love that. (laughs) I relate to that a lot.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's really hard. Like what we all do is we show up every day and we try to like nurture something and get like an idea out of our head to exist in this physical reality. And we have to rely on hundreds of other people to help us. So it's already a a tenuous thing at best. And then something that's charming, such an important movie to me because I, I, it came out of, reading to my three daughters every night for so many years. And I came up with this whole fairy tale idea that was funny because of them. And the making of Charming was like the best experience of my life. It was so, so, so great until it wasn't. And then it got, it just turned and with the financiers and a bunch of nonsense we'd have to get into. And it really made me realize, like, even when you wrote it and you directed it, you're still... It, this is a it's a business. You're still at the mercy of people who brought money and there's other considerations that have nothing to do with you and the art you think you're making. Somehow and I, I, I credit to Deepak. I didn't that didn't happen on Silk Road. Deepak like vowed to sort of pre- create a protective bubble for the process for
0: me. Nice.
1: And he really did. And and he also but he also challenged me. He was very challenging on the story. We went back and forth a lot. The end result is for the first time in my career, and now I guess I've been doing this for about twenty nine years this movie's done and I still love it. Normally I finish something and I'm like, yeah, I don't need to ever look at that again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> so, funny. That's, that's cool though. It's nice. It's nice to be to that point, I imagine.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was really nice and, and it was amazing to have just this perspective, like you said, the, the learn from the dark period and charming how to approach creating something differently so that it didn't become so that overtook my life and bled into my family it was it, i kept it in sort of the job zone but i was still able to bring love and passion to it but it didn't take over everything else
0: yeah absolutely and those yeah it's good that you can utilize those dark periods for you know future success i mean i have a whole series that i've developed that i probably won't see the light of day and it was you know beautiful and challenging at the same time very difficult but uh now that we're past it's like oh yeah there's all this valuable stuff we can take into the next thing, and maybe get to that point where you make a project and you're actually proud of it when you finish it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and also you never, you just don't know, right? The the that project may very well see the light of day. These things come up oh, and yeah. surprise you in the weirdest way. Like we're doing a series right now called "Walk Off the Earth in Space." It's starring the band Walk Off the Earth, and my wife and I made this comic book because we had this idea to do series like six or seven years ago. We made this comic book for them to sell at their concerts, and I it just didn't ever go anywhere. We pitched it all around town. No one was interested, even though they're like amazing. They've got the social media presence. They're, they have a huge family audience. They're an incredible band. They're the nicest people. It didn't happen. And then mid pandemic, everything shifted and suddenly people couldn't make live action. And then the, we have our own little animation company. Uh, yeah. UH animation. And so then the phone started ringing and now we're making 14 half hours of walk off the earth in space, a project we thought wasn't going anywhere. Oh, yeah. it's fantastic. And it's fun. And, Actually, today, later. this is a very good day for me. The movie's coming out later today. I'm getting the first final picture of episode one it will be complete today. And we're already into animation on episode eight. And it was just sitting there. So you just don't know. That's the beautiful thing about yeah. creating, right? Like, once you create it, it's yours. And when the time is ready, you just pull it out and
0: Go. Oh, that's really inspiring. Very cool. Let's watch a clip. Let's, uh, we had that clip that I really liked because it does shift from, uh, CG into hand-drawn and, uh, then we can chat a little bit about it. Very cool. Yeah. So you. you were telling me that this was supposed to be the least expensive se- sequence and it ended up being the most expensive and you were doing it long after the film was supposed to be finished.
1: Yeah. So, you know, what, one of the challenges of making these independent animated movies, of course, is how do you have the scope of a studio movie but keep the price way down? Yeah. So one thing I realized early on was I was going to have to come up with, and also just to keep the audience gauged, I couldn't just do four race sequences because it would get very boring. So if you look at the movie, each race sequence is totally different. We have a totally different approach to it. And so my my original idea here was, oh, let's just use the storyboards. I love storyboards. Yeah. So we had this good same Priscilla, the same board I brought up before. We had her clean up her boards, and we were just going to put the storyboards in the movie. And then what happened was, and so it was going to be a, a really cool way to do a race and really inexpensive. And we left it there and left there. But as the movie kept going and the CG came in, it was really just too jarring. It just yeah. didn't. It didn't work. And and though though it was a cool idea in theory, it looked like we couldn't afford to make the sequence. Yeah. So thankfully, Deepak called and yelled at me as he does sometimes. I said, "Why would you put this in the movie?" <laughs> and and it be and it was way later in the process. So it gave me an opportunity to recreate. I was missing connective tissue in the G and Shelby love story because it's such a thin there wasn't enough space for it. And so we recreated the sequence to be a Shelby's fantasy sequence. So even though it's a fantasy sequence, it gives the audience more sense of them on the screen together. Yeah. And then we decided the way to remake it. So we had to reboard the whole thing anyway. <laughs> and then to make it, we to make it look right, we had to animate everything in CG then have artists come in and draw over, then put on this filtration set, then do the VFX, then do the comp. So it just, it became the most expensive sequence in the movie from the and, and the hardest one to make. But I love it. And we obviously spent a large portion of our music budget on that song. Yeah, And I just want to, I got to tell you one crazy fact just because I love little coincidences like this. Tom Jacob, who is the president of DNEG Animation, DNEG is part of the Redefined family, and he's an exec producer of this movie. Yeah, I was making the sequence, and he called me one day, and he said, "Do you know the first job I ever had in this business was I was a PA on that video? So he was a PA on that uh, hobby, and I was the president <laughs> of DNEG Animation. Wow, and was an exec producer of this movie.
0: Wow, he's uh, on cool. <laughs> That's awesome. <Yeah. laughs> and even that was a great opportunity. Like this is such a classic song. Oh
1: That's yeah, great. I mean, and and I saw, and I was just telling you this before, but. When we went and saw the Super Mario Brothers movie, when they get in the Mario Kart racing, they start playing the same song. And, I mean, my heart just dropped because they put so much on And I was really looking forward to people seeing this sequence because I felt like it was really special, even from the time we conceived it on. And I was so worried that it was the – because to me, it was the obvious thing to do because we get it. I was so worried they were going to do that in Super Mario Brothers. And then it was just going to blow us out of the water because their budget, you know is so much bigger than ours yeah so i was just thank god <laughs> when i got to the end of the sequence i was like Whew. all right we, our sequence is still cool still stands up
0: so. that's great <laughs> very cool yeah I, I fully appreciated it and i could tell i was just watching i was like this a lot of this is hand drawn you know and yeah, uh, there is too- a cg component to it but it's not just tracing there was a lot to it that uh a lot of love that went yeah, into these frames.
1: Yeah, to get the lines right, you know, the, the line work was really important. And uh, again, I got to credit Alexi with just diving in there and, and forcing. He found a way to navigate within the studio to get things done that I just thought weren't within our budget. Yeah, um, He's sort of yeah. like a ninja. He works behind the scenes and suddenly resources appear that I didn't know we had.
0: Uh, so That's very cool. Nice to have one of those people around. <laughs>
1: Yeah, every, 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 uh, every production and every director should be so lucky as to have uh, someone like Alexi yeah. <laughs> heading up yeah. the visuals. Yeah,
0: I do actually have a lot of people who ask me, like, how do you get into the industry as a writer? And you're one of those rare directors that is first and foremost a writer. It doesn't sound like you have a ton of animation experience. You're more from the writing, the storytelling, the, the craft of yeah, structure. I,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I was always an artist as a kid and always trying mm-hmm. and I actually got into school with an art portfolio and then okay. freshman year of college I got into writing and I became my brother was a senior in college he's like let's go write together so I started taking literature classes and I, I kind of fell in love with writing and I went that way. But I, I, when I came to Hollywood, I wanted to do animation. I wanted to be from the writing directing side. I mean, my biggest influence is probably the reason I'm in film industry is Jim Henson. I mean, yeah. the Muppet movie changed my life when I was a little kid. Yeah. I have a, a beautiful story of going to see it in Manhattan with my mom for another time. But, um, I, I came out there and, you know, when I first got the I came out in 95 to uh, to L.A. And very quickly, I, I was very lucky. I, I PA for a day on music video. I found out MTV was looking for writers on a show. Mm-hmm. So I, I submitted a bunch of jokes and they hired me. So I was 21 and I PA for a day and I was suddenly a writer on MTV. Wow. And that became I, I've only been a writer or now writer, director, producer since then. So I, got, I was very fortunate in that way. I, so I got I signed with CAA early on. Back, I'm not. I haven't been with them for 13 years or so, but I remember I was pitching them all these animated ideas, and back then it was a little bit before this boom of animation, and they, the advice I got at the time was, oh, animation is sort of where like writers who can't get a real job go, and I just, yeah. I just found it insulting, and I just wanted to be there, so I kept pushing, and then eventually, my brother and I and our partner Dave Getch ended up uh, getting this series on UPN, which is called Game Over, and it was the first ever CGI primetime sitcom. Yeah, Lou, Patrick Warburton, Artie Lay, and so I was kind of got my way back into animation. There it was on UPN, which ceased to be a network, so we got canceled. It was a ton of fun, and that sort of kind of got me going back towards what I always wanted to do, which was be in the space. But like you said, from I love telling stories, and it's been really thrilling and fun to get to direct them myself. But I lean very heavily, of course, on you know now all my I still love drawing and doodling, but compared to these kind of master artists who I get to work with every day. Uh, it's just a pleasure to sit back and go, here's kind of what I'm thinking. And then they come back with something that blows my mind every time.
0: Yeah, that's great. I would love to hear more about those days when you were writing before writing and directing animation. Um, what was your favorite, like what was the favorite experience and what was the hardest experience?
1: I started writing at MTV and I was on the show called Singled Out and that was a lot of fun. It was like a, it was a early reality show dating show and yeah. uh you know I was, I was 21 I was just moved from LA from New York it was sort of like the, a great place to be and, and it was like a lot of young energy around there and I started right there and then I ended up actually the first time I ever wrote uh, a scripted show I wrote one episode of Kenan and Kel and mm-hmm. I wrote it my writing partner at the time wrote some movies it never quite worked out it was Neil Brennan who went on to you know create the Chappelle show and some other stuff yeah so Neil and I wrote a movie for Chappelle that didn't get made, but that introduced us to Bob Simons, and they went on and made Half-Baked with him, and but Neil and I wrote, we were writing some stuff, and so that really got me, and Neil was just an incredible joke writer, so that kind of got me into that space a little bit more, and of just writing scripted things, and so my brother and Dave Getch and I Dave went on to, uh, he was on Big Bang Theory as an exec producer all the, the whole run of it, we went and we pitched our first movie ever, the one I mentioned that John Williams was a producer of uh-huh. and it was called Galaxy High. It was based on the old animated series from Chris Columbus. So we were suddenly pitching. It took us like nine months to get the pitch right but and get to be the writers. so they brought in but it was Chris Columbus and his partner Michael Barnathan who's still a good friend and a really, you know, great collaborator and supporter of mine and uh, we went into DreamWorks and we pitched, it was the first time I ever pitched a movie. We pitched at like in the courtyard of DreamWorks And Lori McDonald was the president of DreamWorks at the time, and she had these sunglasses on, and she didn't blink the whole time. It was a 45-minute pitch, and I just thought we were taking it. And at the end, she took off her glasses and said, that's great, go start writing, we'll make a deal. And so I I often refer to that as the great bait and switch of my career. So it was the best thing ever. I was 22 or 23, pitched a movie, we sold it at the table. I was like, this is the easiest business in the world. And then, of Um. course, six drafts later, You know, years later, six drafts later, and it it just is always about to get made and never got made. And I just started realizing that there's, there, so there was a lot of that um, in those kind of first decade of my career, which was really big highs and excitement of working with people who I really admired and was really excited about. But realizing that just because you had sold something, you were being paid to write something and you were writing draft upon draft, and everyone at the studio seemed to like you and they hire you for something else, it didn't mean it was getting made. Yeah. So, and, and so that was, that, really was part of the thing that drove me to independent route which was the frustration of of you know we don't write screenplays for 10 to 15 people to read them we write them because we hope they get made and turn into a movie yeah and uh so and i was in no position to complain of anything but gratitude because i was being paid to be a writer my i mean i couldn't explain my grandma, my grandma used to ask me what i did because i claimed I as a writer and i was supporting my family but nothing i wrote was being made (laughs) um but uh yeah so that's that's sort of the the high and low of it yeah wow i'm in it i'm doing it i'm living my dream and yet it's not coming to creative fulfillment so
0: (laughs) sounds so familiar (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, you know
1: i've heard it described i mean a lot of writers will talk about you know, and, and that's what a lot of what changed by the two thousand eight strike, by the way, like the idea of just going pitching and being paid to write something that might not get made. And so there was a lot of like the sense of there's a whole group of us writers who felt like we were just failing upwards because we were never getting anything made, but we were suddenly the exact the studio would go, This what else do you have like that? And like, I have that that you're holding that you own, we can make that. It's like, yeah, we want we want this, but we want something like, like I just couldn't get my head around <sighs> what was happening. So I I've been The independent world is got its own challenges for Mm -hmm. sure, but it's. I love it. I love just kind of being in the trenches with people and making stuff.
0: Yeah. What was the budget of this film? Can you say?
1: Uh, The budget when we started out was twelve million. Uh, Honestly, I don't know what it got to. We know, like I said, in the middle of the movie, the pandemic happened, and suddenly we went. But uh, it. It strangely, I don't. I honestly don't even know where we ended up. But I would definitely less than 20 in the end yeah yeah i mean it went from 18 months to four years so someone had to pay for that
0: yeah (laughs) that's true somebody had to pay those hundreds of people and you (laughs) to work on it and uh yeah awesome so what's next
1: what's next so I, i mentioned we're doing this series uh yeah walk off the earth in space which we're really excited about we're also at my company edh we're doing a lot of really cool micro budget things we're using uh AI, but in a cool sense with artists, we're not replacing artists, but just sort of the AI enabled features of Photoshop and this one, and Magma, which is this other drawing program, we're in with some artists there, and it's really cool how fast we can move, and we're using a lot of VR stuff, we're storyboarding in VR now, like I get up at six in the morning and meet with storyboard artists in Israel in our VR space, and we're able to just move objects around and move the cameras around. And so we're doing some cool, like public domain micro budget stuff. Uh, That's really making cool. A version of, of yeah, we're making like a we're, One of the funniest things we're doing. We're doing some cool stuff for YouTube with our a, a company called Driver Studios, who's a partner of ours who really understands like the data side of things. But one of the funniest things we're doing is we're making a, a version of Winnie and the Pooh based on the 1928 illustrations. So it's really funny to be using AI and VR to make like this very simple watercolor that looks like something from 1928. It's a weird – but it's a super micro-budget. And then on the film side, you know, the next project we're hoping to make with the same group who made Rally Road Racers is called Wild Goose Chase. And it's a uh, sort of Dumb and Dumber meets National Treasure in Mother (laughs) Gooseland. And it's a big musical.
0: Yeah, yeah. You dumb and dumber uh-huh. meets national treasure in Mother Goose Land. Oh, so, you know, <laughs> you know, like
1: the, almost like the Da Vinci Code. The idea of the movie is, and I love this script, it's a really funny script, is all those insane Mother Goose rhymes that make no sense, they're actually coded, like in the Da Vinci Code, and mm-hmm. they, they lead you to the golden eggs from the goose, and, and Mother Goose Land's going bankrupt, and... It's, uh, and the only people who can seem to see the codes and believe in it are Simple Simon and wee willie Winky, who everyone thinks are just dummies, but they actually follow the code and they end up saving Mother Goose Land through this, like, national treasure, like, <laughs> run. Yeah. It's, it's a funny script, so... Uh, but it's a bigger production than, than this because of full musical, so we're just uh, putting it together now.
0: Wow. How many drafts of the script for Rally Road Racers did you have?
1: Uh... <laughs> many drafts of the script for my, my that is a uh, that is a great question my you know, to like
0: pre and post working with Deepak yeah pre, pre,
1: <laughs> so, so when I first wrote it like I said it was called The Fast and the Furriest and there was a couple drafts of that and it was set in Australia and then we met with someone who was thinking about making it over back in the day at Fox and they said well they, we really want." oh no they are the reason we set in Australia it was really set in America then I moved it to Australia and then it sat for a while because I made the other two movies and then we thought that we moved it to China because there was financing available at that time. And, and I was, it was during kind of the Silk Road revitalization period, it seemed like something that was going to take take off and really didn't in a lot of ways. Um, so we moved it there. So there's probably like five or six drafts. And then we met Deepak. And then there were probably about 40 more drafts. I mean, we just, and we were in, but we just kept going back and forth. And there were some things that were from the earlier drafts that we were really trying to hold on to. And then later on we realized, Oh, if we just remove it, everything falls into place. But I mean, it's hard to say when you're doing writing and directing, but I, I honestly think there had to be 40, 40, 45 versions
0: of that script. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I'm to about, uh, 20 on my, <laughs> not quite that maybe I'm to 10, but it's, it just seems like, you know, writing is rewriting and, uh, and it, it takes a lot of, uh, time of thinking and testing, like you test it and you can show it to an audience and then get reactions. And then you rewrite it again, you know, to make sure that it's not only effectively communicating, but it feels natural and and all that stuff. So,
1: yeah, it's, it's really interesting when you put something up in front of an audience and you realize that what you thought was hilarious and super important is not that funny or that important to them. And these little things that you didn't know were so important or what people latch on to. So I mean, there's nothing more valuable than fresh eyes throughout the process.
0: (laughs) That's interesting. You'd say it's important. What kinds of things have you seen that you thought were important, but they ended up not being?
1: Well, I mean, the one I was kind of referencing a moment ago was so the original story of Fast and Furious was that G was this adorable slow loris. I mean, actually, he was originally a koala because he was in Australia. (laughs) This adorable little guy and but he saw himself as like Han Solo he thought he was Harrison Ford but he was this adorable little stuffed animal and what that led meant was he had rage issues because I thought it was really funny that like this little adorable thing would lose its mind and the rage issues were what was are what was getting in the way of his ability to race and that's why he couldn't ever cross a finish line because he had so much rage and if he got through the rage then then he'd be able to win and we even it was still in the story when it was the Silk Road Rally I've got some great early drawings that Alexi and his team did of like the five stages of rage of Xi and how he puffs up. And for some reason, the story just wasn't clicking, wasn't clicking. But Deepak and I both believed that was integral to it. And I remember being at a call with him one day where we both at the same time had that realization and said to each other, what if we just lose the rage thing, which was like the whole center of his character. And we pulled it out. And when we pulled that out, the next draft, the movie worked and we realized that we had been holding on to something we thought was so central to the story but it was actually the biggest obstacle to the story.
0: Interesting. What made it the biggest obstacle you think? Because we were
1: we were bending over backwards to service it because it was this intellectual idea that we loved but it really <laughs> wasn't we couldn't connect the pieces of it, you know, and it, we were and then when we realized like what if he just he just chokes? I mean, he's on a fundamental level, he's just an athlete. And, mm-hmm. you know, and everyone understands that everyone understands choking under pressure every little kid understands like having this big idea in their head they're going to go to the school presentation tomorrow or show and tell and it's going to go this way and they get up there in front of people and they can't do it or they stumble and they fall So it's just such a simple idea like replacing something so complex with something so simple and relatable just made the pieces fall into place
0: yeah, it's great so it was a cool intellectual I mean, idea yeah, it just wasn't quite working emotionally you couldn't really quite connect yeah. to it
1: and, and, you know, one of the things about independent animation and these budgets is you, you, you're really limited, right? Like, you have about 85 minutes of animation you can afford. So real estate is super valuable, right? So having a character like Nash, J.K. Simmons' character, the goat, have to come in and, like, psychologically rewire a character who's suffering from rage issues <laughs> is way more complex than I can identify he chokes if I can... I can find ways along the race to get him through that and eventually he can overcome it. But just, it just fit into the story better, you know? And also it's, it's an animated film for kids and family. So we wanted room for jokes and action and you know, it wasn't really meant to be a, a, a psychological think piece.
0: Yeah. That's cool. Then have you ever been able to get together with crew members and stuff or are you purely, purely remote? <laughs>
1: I was with the crew for the first year plus of the film. I'd go up to Montreal for two weeks, every six weeks. And so I spent a lot of time with them. And then by the time the movie ended, we were kind of past COVID. So we finished the movie in London and that's where we did all the the, the color correction and all the post audio. So I was with a, a bunch of the people there. I mean, a lot of people had rolled off the movie by then. Uh, Alexi was still there from, you know, like I guess it was the first hire and he was the last one out. We went and did the color grade uh, together and then we were able to, Screen the movie in London and It was all done with Alexi and Deepop there, and Nick Bauer, one of the other producers who's just been super, uh, was just super helpful for the whole process. And a few other, and then, you know, the, the later teams, the, the audio team and everyone of course was there, but uh, it was a, it was a disruption in the middle, but I have to say, I'm, I'm a huge fan of working remotely. It's a really, yeah. it's really amazing to be able to, to connect with artists anywhere in the world. It, it, we used to have to try to convince them to move to a certain country to get a tax credit and then you're paying all these fees. And it just isn't that feasible in independent animation. Yeah. It's so disruptive to people's lives. And sometimes you meet an artist you really want to work with, but they don't want to move to the random place you're making a movie. And mm-hmm. now it just seems like one of the sort of ugly gifts of the pandemic was <laughs> opened up people's minds of going, well, if you want to work with that artist, just work with him and then, or her and meet him on Zoom every day.
0: Yeah, yeah. The place I'm working now, they offered me a job years ago, and, and I had to turn them down, you know, because I wanted to stay in Utah. And I was really sad about that. I really wanted to work with them. I think they do incredible work, and I just love Jalil Sadul's spirit and just the way he works with people. And uh, now I get to do it. Now I get to do it remotely, and we have animators all over the world, which is fun. It's a little challenging scheduling-wise, because uh, there are some animators I only overlap with for one hour of the day. <laughs> right. But... Uh, at the same time, you know, you learn how to communicate, you learn how to work around that and you um, learn how to cherish those relationships still, even though you don't get a ton of interaction with them.
1: So. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, like I said, this movie was made in, I was mostly in California at the beginning. So I was already three hours from Montreal. Then we were in London. Then we we're in Mumbai. I was about 12 and I think 12 and a half hours off from Mumbai. So I was meeting with teams there. The meetings were crazy hours. What, we In the middle of that period of time, my family and I were on vacation in Hawaii for about 10 or 14 days, and so that was a further three hours out, and that's why I realized that was sort of the ideal time difference for me, because I could get up at like 4 in the morning, work with the teams until about 8.30 or 9, and then they were all done, and then i have the whole day with my family, <laughs> so I still think about that time in the mind, could make that work. That might be nice. <laughs> How do you get that morning? again? I'm <laughs> I'm free I'm free for the day, but I've done a whole day of work.
0: So, yeah, that's awesome. I
1: think there's a lot of there's a lot of benefits to working remotely.
0: Cool. So, this is a great question for a writer. It's the get wiser moment that I always ask a question that is in the same vein and that is that if my goal is to get the deepest concentration of or the deepest clarity of meaning into a story, what approach would you recommend?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I think it sort of goes back to the the rage story I was telling you, which is sim- simplify it. So, uh, if if my uh, wife and business partner Lenore were here with you, she'd tell you my first drafts are long, they're overcomplicated. I just I, I dig into everything, and then the the revision process is just distilling down to what is the kernel of what I'm saying. And especially, in, I think, in, in movies that want to have room for action and comedy, what's the simplest way you could tell that story and then you plant it and fall I, I know that I always feel like I have to say so much more than actually has to be said. Yeah. Audiences are so savvy. And even, and I think, or especially young audiences, I, I see a lot of times people in reviews talking about, well, kids have never seen this, don't like it, but I find the, the kid audience to be incredibly savvy. And, yeah, they are. And, pick it, and they really pick up on everything. So, the, Especially in animation, the more you can tell visuals and without dialogue, I think the better you're doing. My my, the Charming, for instance, was very dialogue heavy. And coming out of that, one of the things I realized when I was rewriting Fast and the, Fur- well, yeah, Fast and the Furious was, like, can I just take out a ton of this dialogue and just make room for action and physical comedy and visuals because that's what animation animation to me is at it's best when it's visuals with great music yeah so i think simplification allows each of those moments to really have its moment and be important and the audience will get it
0: that's cool especially the kid audience that was my experience with my short film Layers. You know, I have uh, Michael Flaherty came on the show a while back. And he said, oh, you're playing 40 chess with this thing. And he he just saw so much complexity in it. But uh, adults, you know, less adults tended to understand it than children. Like if I showed it to a group of children, they completely understood the story, everything. But the adults are like they're trying to read maybe too much into it or, you know, that sort of thing. And and my wife likes to always say, you know, you if you can explain something to a child, you know, you really understand it deeply.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And I think also adults, we, uh, again, you see it in in the critical response to a lot of animated films. I mean, I know I'm guilty of this too, seeing other movies and then just getting in there and tearing them apart. Like they could have done this, they could have done that. But one thing I've come to realize is making a movie is a miracle. (laughs) Like It's like a series of miracles. The fact that you can finish a script that's really solid, then get it green lit, then get it financed, then get it made. And then... goes through the whole production it's like just a non-stop series of miracles and then if you end up where i am today where then it's in movie theaters that's a whole nother level of miracle so yeah i think the, the, that what a lot of we a lot of times what we do is we we you know backseat drive these movies again i'm, I'm, I'm very guilty of this yeah. and and we don't and we don't realize like of course there are compromises made. There's there's so much on the line. There are people who are spending money. There was crew. There's the writer or director had an idea that he took a chance on it. Maybe it just didn't stick to landing. And this maybe we just have to give a little more like space and, and graciousness to these uh, to these filmmakers and let that you know, know that, that there's a it's there's a million different possibilities of how these things could go or could go wrong and the fact that they did it is amazing and yeah. deserves to be celebrated.
0: I love that. Great insight. I, if you want people to engage with you and engage with your work, where's the best place to do that? Is that Instagram or?
1: Um, I'm, I'm really working on getting, getting better at the Instagram. Um, my, uh, my, my daughters are, uh, are uh, finally maybe drilled in my head the difference between a post and a story. So I'm pretty proud uh, about that. Okay. And, uh, but uh, no, I mean, definitely I'm, I'm on there a lot more now and I'm really building that up and cause I, I see the benefit of, in, of um, interacting with people. I'm on Twitter too, which definitely I've got a little bit more of a handle on uh, because I have a whole sort of Web three side of my life, and we use Twitter a lot for that. So um, those are the two best places, yeah. At ochre at both of them.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Ross, for being on the show. And thank you. Best of luck with your opening today and uh, all of the thank you. All the success. We wish you all success for your future projects as well.
1: I appreciate it. And you too. I hope I wish you great success with everything.
0: Thank you. And until next time, I hope we all get a little wiser. Thank you for watching the Directing Animation Livecast hosted by Scott Weiser, audio version edited by Kira Horowitz, copyright Scott Weiser LLC 2022. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube and ring that notification bell.